As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Right, we have got the biggest true crime author in the world on the channel today. Christopher has sold millions of books, but it's not just literature. He has been and interviewed 30 serial killers and mass murderers. So we're going to go to some dark places today and get these gruesome stories for you anyway thank you for coming on christopher god bless you yeah <laughs> cheers cheers <laughs> in the link below in the description box are all of his links if you're interested in his books and also the links for his socials so please go down not that you need any more sales with these <laughs> all right so what got you into this uh well i was a royal marine commando for many years i was an intelligence officer I learned the interrogation trade. When I came out of the Marines, I literally was interested in murder and homicide. Had you witnessed murder and homicide in the military? Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, how uh, does that affect you when you first see things like that? Not really. You're numb? Numb. I mean, we're trained. That was our job. Yeah. And and when you're under fire and or you have to pull a trigger on somebody, that's your job. Yeah, and I watched I watched a few executions in the Far East, and um, with my job now, I I I am completely dispassionate about it all. Desensitized. It's water off a duck's back. How old are you when you saw executions in the Far East? I was about nineteen, twenty. <sighs> Can you say which countries that they were? Yeah, Singapore, uh, a Changi, uh, hangings there, one in Malaysia, and two in Pakistan. What were the reasons they were getting executed? Terrorism. Terrorism. Wow. So how long were you in the military? I was 12 years. 12 years. And what were your scariest moments? None. None? No. Fire? Getting fired at? Well, afterwards you think about it, yeah. <laughs> not, not when it's happening, no. How often did you get fired at? I can't remember. It was a few times. Was it? Yeah, but they missed, obviously, because I'm here now. <laughs> so you got out, and then what? Well, it, I went through a quiet period. Um a bit of repping, I think it was. That was all it was. But I had this ha this inkling to try to understand the devious human mind, what makes a terrorist tick, what makes a bomber tick. Um, and so I I bought a collection of books, which are the true crime series, which were very popular back then. And you had a lot of serial killers going, all killers going back. What years are these then, like oh, 70s and this stuff? this must be decades ago now. Ted Bundy era. Yeah, but it was around that time. But there was Harvey Carrigan and a lot of them. 
And I thought to myself, I want to write to these people. And of course, that was before, literally, when we had to, you know, had to send a letter and and find out which prison they were in. And I wrote to a number of them, and bit by bit, I started to get replies. And then I did a book called Dad Help Me Please, which was the Craig and Bentley case. And I managed to get hold of the Section 5.1 documents, the extended closure documents. And I realised that Derek Bentley had been, it was it was a ju- judicial murder. They hung the poor lad. Um, a lot of that. And, and then uh, a, a, a guy who ran um, Crystal Vision, and he ran a, a television pro, a station in Croydon, rang me up, got hold of me. He said, look, Chris, we can make a TV series on serial killers with what you've got. And that's what started me off on my career. Why the fascination with serial killers? I think it really is a case of we always look to what is so good in people. And then when you see how much destruction and heartache these serial killers cause, and they have no conscience, I want to know what's going on inside their heads. What makes them tick? Why haven't they got a conscience? What makes them different to your colleagues and you and me? And, and why can they commit such terrible acts and not even worry about it? That, to me, was fascinating. Why is the world fascinated with them? For the same reasons? Well, I think just about every program on television and radio these days, every soap, every newscast, there is some crime somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just part of society now. So out of the 30 then... Which ones were the most evil, and did they ever frighten you? They're all evil. Um, again, do they frighten me? No, because I'm in control of what I'm doing. Uh, one of the many questions I'm often asked is, I always wanted, somebody would say to me, I want to do interview a serial I'd love to interview a serial killer, but but I'll be scared. And then they say to me, does it scare you? And I say, no, I, I come from Portsmouth. And that throws them for a minute. And and then and then I, and they say to me, was your hair always white? <laughs> <laughs> and is it true that the only Christmas cards you get at festive season are from monsters? <laughs> so no, it doesn't scare me. It doesn't. The thing is, if I'm if I get nervous when I'm talking to one of these sociopaths or psychopaths, and they're control freaks, they know it. They can smell it, and then they control you. So it works the other way. So I have been housed in every level of prison security, from minimum to supermax. So I know the procedure when you have a visit. Yes. So like in supermax, your belly chained, ankle chained, and everything. You got a phone with one hand and you're chained up, and the visitors behind a plexiglass screen. I imagine most serial killers are in supermax, and you're visiting them in very guarded, protected circumstances. Correct. Are there any times when you're like sat like me and you with them? Or would that yeah, be and unreal- a lot closer. Would that be unrealistic? No, it's not unrealistic at all. Um, Douglas Clark, the Sunset Slayer, who we'll come to in a minute, I'm sure. Um, it, he was crazed when he came out to see me, but he was pissed off with the prison, not me. And he was shackled hand and foot. Um, he's the only one that I've ever. Some are behind a screen, like Kenneth McDuff in Texas, 
or Henry Lee Lucas in Texas, in Ellis Unit, as it was back then, the death row. Um, but by and large, I prefer them brought to me un shackled, but then unshackled. So I have an arrangement with the prison officers beforehand, a secret deal, to say, look, bring him in shackled, but I'm going to say to you, I want the cuffs and chains taken off, and I want him to have a Coca-Cola or something, because this gives the inmate, hello, Christopher's telling my people who boss me around, he's in charge. And it makes them feel, and they rub their hands, and they, they feel more relaxed. So that's it's the mind game. That's what we're doing. Was there ever a moment when that could have gone against you? They could have grabbed you? Oh, yes. Kenneth Bianchi, the Hillside Strangler, I was locked in a cubicle with him on his own. Locked in? Locked in a cubicle on his own. There was a small table in between us. Uh, he, he, he hated... He, he, I'd upset him before I actually got to the prison, funny enough, but... He, he, he's got the eyes of a great white shark. They're, they don't blink and they're black. Mm -hmm. And he's an animal. And he was sitting and he just, he tried to stare me down. And you could feel the heat coming off of him, the hatred. And I got up, walked round to him, put my arm round his shoulder. And I said, you're a miserable fucker. Give me a smile. <laughs> and his face cracked and he laughed. But then, <laughs> but then as he left, as he left, he turned around, and the minute the guards opened the door and the guards were in the room, he turned around and snarled at me, and he said, if you ever come here, next to me again, I'll rip your fucking head off. But he did that with the guards there. So he was a coward because he only killed little girls and mm. prostitutes. They're bullies. Mm. So it, it, that has happened a couple of times. Arthur Shawcross lost his plot a bit. But again, it's a case of me leaning forward, touching him, and saying, come on, shh, 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 come on behave yourself now yeah or your fiance is gonna she's gonna lose her temper with you so it's it's, it's a mind game now <coughs> i've not heard of many female serial killers and you've covered a few of these can you tell us about joanne dennehy is that's pronounced mm. joanne dennehy is in my opinion one of the most heinous serial killers that i've ever met or interviewed, or worked with, or written to, or did anything on in all of my career of interviewing serial killers, men and women. She is, I think, 35 now, but when she was committing offences around about 33 years old, she's not a big woman. She's quite pretty. She's quite petite when she's got her makeup on. Um. She had a really good education. She came from a middle-class family, and she had a, a younger sister. Parents tried to bring her up well, and she went right off the rails, and she killed three men in Peterborough, stabbing them more times than you could dream of. One when a guy was drunk, he, he was an innocent guy, and he went to bed, he got drunk, and she stabbed them to death so 40 times. Um, she killed... A Polish guy that she met, she invited him around for a drink. He, she met him the day before in a, in a mall and stabbed him in the heart. And then she killed her landlord employer. She was like a bouncer getting rid of dodgy tenants. 
she lured this happily married man allegedly round to her, one of his places. He put on a sequin skirt because he was a bit kinky. And she stabbed him to death and they, her and her accomplice dumped him in a dike in Pe- near Peterborough. Who was her accomplice? Gary Stretch. Six foot eight Gary Stretch. And they positioned the body with, I think it's an aerosol container pushed up his anus so the world could see posing the bodies. And then she, they fled down to the West Country to Gloucester, I think it was, or somewhere. And then she attacked two men in broad daylight, walking their dogs, um, stabbed them in the street. And then after the first attack, she was stood there licking the blood off the blade. And she stabbed, and when 10 minutes later, she stabbed another man after death with 40. And then, oh. then the police caught her. And How long did she go on this killing rampage for? Uh, well, the, the first series, the, the three kills were committed all within a week. Um, the two attempt murders were committed um, all within 10 minutes. So, What she, made her snap? Uh, she had a hatred for women, basically. She was a control freak. She could charm men with her flirting. But if you went to if a man went to bed with her, you'd be lucky to wake up in the morning. She uh, is Satan's spawn. She has tried to escape in prison, HMP, HMP Bronzefield. She tried to cut the finger off uh, a prison guard's hand because she wanted to use it as a key to get out. She threatened one of her lesbian lovers with murder she was put on put in a special housing unit um uh, she was there for six months isolation and then she tried to sue the british government because of her prison conditions and so the prison's in between a rock and hard place they can't let her into the general population because she's going to kill somebody but they keep if they keep her segregated she sues but the, the the shocking thing is she wanted to marry one of her prison girlfriend inmates and the taxpayer was being asked to foot the bill. So I put in one of my book, hands up anybody who wants to buy the cake. <sighs> you described quite a normal upbringing. Was she abused? Was she addicted to drugs? Uh, she had a perfectly normal upbringing. Um, she started off on the drug drink trial when she was about 14 when she met a fairground some fairground workers traveling fairground workers who got her into drink and drugs and hard drugs and that definitely affected her mind because it, it with a young person the brain doesn't stop developing to the age of 2021 20, so all these toxic chemicals going into her body affected her brain and there's no doubt about that that was about 14 and how old was she when she was doing these kills uh about 30 31 32 were there any arrests? <coughs> were there any arrests in that intermittent period from fourteen to thirty-one? Yes, for there any were. Arrests? She she was sectioned a couple of times um, under the Mental Health Act. Uh, I think she attacked one guy with a razor blade in a, a furious rage or something, uh, but she can only be held for a certain amount of time before they released her. I think there, there were mine what would call minor offences compared with homicide. Yeah. I think I've heard of Gary Stretch. Can you tell us his story, please? Well, what an asshole. He, um, six foot seven, uh, six foot seven, gotta be, um, 
she called him the Undertaker because she, he was the one that with her she couldn't drive. So they had a, they got a car, and and he had to drive. But he was so tall, he had to drive it with his hands up to the steering wheel. But he was an idiot, and he he'd fallen in love with her. She he 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 was like a puppy to her. She would whistle and he'd do whatever she wanted. Um, but he he was a burglar originally, but. As the, one of the police officers said to me, he, Chris, he, he could never have been a good burglar because he had size 15 feet. He said, and when he crawled through a window, it took half an hour before his feet followed him. He said he, he was told by his wife, Gary, stop it. This is not for you. So he spent time in jail as well. And there is a suggestion at one point that he, he was involved in the murder of another inmate in prison, but it was never proven. So was were they both convicted of murder? Yes. And was there a trial, or did they just sign a plea bargain or something? Uh, there was a trial for all of them, but Joe, she put her hands up straight away. She even she stunned her lawyers because when it when the judge when the said Are you plead guilty or not guilty, she just stuck her hand up and said guilty, and then she started swearing at the judge. So what sentence did she get? Natural life. What about stretch? Uh, he he's got well basically natural life as well. Yeah, I mean, he got I think eighteen years, but uh, but but he will die in prison. What was his role in the murders then? He was accomplice. Accomplice. Was yeah. he stabbing people as well? No, no, he was the enabler. He was the one that drove her around. He was the one that moved the bodies with her. Uh, he was like an enforcer. Did they make an attempt to dispose of bodies? Well, the, yeah, if you can call throwing them in a ditch, yes. So they're never getting out then. No, the the interesting thing is she's ranked with um, Rose West and Mara Hindley. She will serve a, a natural life sentence, and she will never be released. Only in a pine box she'll come out of jail. Kenneth Alicio Bianchi. Yeah, Ken Bianchi. Yeah, Bianchi. What's his story? Well, Ken, Kenneth Bianchi is. He's the most interesting psychopath that I've ever interviewed because he has, he is so manipulative. He was one of the notorious hillside stranglers going back seventies. Who were they? Uh, Angela Bono, his half cousin, um, killed prostitutes and two little girls in LA, two schoolgirls. But he tortured the they tortured the victims. Um, they inserted needles into them and injected cleaning fluid into their veins. Um, they oh. put plastic bags over the head and put coal gas into them. Um, oh, they tortured these two little them. girls. Well, that was back then. Um, they did the most terrible things to these tortured these women. The sadosexual killers. Again, they left the bodies like Joe did, Joe Dennehy did. They left them on the hillsides around Los Angeles, naked, with their legs open for everybody to see, like an insult. And the legs were always pointed towards the city itself. Um, he, I firmly believe, when I was in Rochester, New York, uh, talking to uh, Captain of Detectives Lynn B. Johnson on another case, on Arthur Shawcross' case, um, that... Bianchi was responsible for three homicides much, much earlier in his killing career, which were called the alphabet killings of three girls in Rochester, New York, three kiddies. 
And they called them the alphabet murders or the double initial murders because the first name always began with the second second name. So you had Wanda Walkowitz, WW. After the killings of in the, the Los Angeles uh, series, about 12, I think, off the top of my head, maybe, maybe less, um, he fled to Bellingham, Washington with his common-law wife. Uh, she was already there. She'd left him, but he went there. And then he killed two co-eds, Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder, in one evening when they were doing some fake babysitting job for him, house-sitting job. Strangled them. Strangled them. I mean, I've seen the scenes of crime photographs. I've visited all the crime scenes. I've seen all the evidence. I've talked to all the cops. And I interviewed Ken. Uh, I, I worked with Ken for a long time in correspondence, and then I eventually interviewed him, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, in the Washington State Penitentiary. What did he tell you? <coughs> not a lot, excuse me, not a lot. But he did, he told me before I went there, because he he lives on a special housing unit. He's segregated from the main population. And um, he told me he had a big house. And he was like what you call a red band in the UK, like a trustee. So I asked, I had to run the prison for a week. I mean, I went on death row. I had all the inmates on death row unlocked and sitting around chatting to me. I had the run of the jail. And and I, I went up and I thought, oh, I want to go and see Ken in his big house that he's boasting about. And anybody who knows American prisons that you've got a, a row of cells, that, what they call a tier, and a yellow line, you mustn't cross the line, and then you've got the wall and the windows. And so I, the guards were a little bit edgy because they said, look, Chris, don't go over the yellow line because they'll spit or throw urine at you. Well, I walked up the yellow line and I came back and then I saw Ken's cell number eight. And I walked up to the bars and I said, because this is after he told me he'd kill me if I... And I, I, he was listening on this little bunk. You couldn't swing a cat around in this cell. And I, I said to him, Kenny, I said, is Christopher come to visit you in your big house, my friend? But he had headphones on. He was listening to a radio. And I shouted out, and he flew off of this bunk at the bars, screaming and shouting abuse. And the, the guards came up, and they said to him, Kenneth, you're being a naughty boy. We're going to throw you down the hole for a month, and we're taking your radio away because you've been a bad boy. And then I saw him again after that during an exercise thing. He did go out on exercise, and it was snowing. And I was standing feet away from him as he walked past, and he just looked down. He didn't look at me. You have to understand these killers, these killers will only attack and kill helpless women, prostitutes, elderly, children, babies. Very rarely face up to a guy. You described his eyes. How big was he? Uh, I suppose, I mean, I don't do metric, but I think he's about 15, 16 stone. Very stocky. Got to remember, these people spend a lot of time pumping iron. Um, but his eyes are, they don't blink. They're, they're coal black. And when, you look, and when you look into those eyes, when I was looking into them, you can feel evil coming into you. They just stare, you know, and, and anybody's been stared at, like, you know, it can be unnerving, but, but it, I just walked around and. So how did he come to start killing people? What was his life like? He was an adopted child. His, his adoptive mother was Francis Piccioni. His father was, his adopted father 
I mean, his, his original mother was a prostitute. Uh, she chucked him out as a baby. He was brought up with foster parents. The father was an alcoholic gambler. The mother was a needy mother. She wanted she wanted this adoptive boy like um, a, a little puppy, something that would run in. A, she could mirror her own insecurities in the boy, and he developed a multiple, well, a sort of almost a multiple personality as a result of that. But but he's a pathological liar. He, when he was arrested in uh, down in Los Angeles, he pretended he was a psychologist. And he stole lots of diplomas from real students. And he had a, a fake office. And his, the idea was to lure girls into his web. He then became a doctor, Bianchi. And, and then when he, he was locked up, he became Reverend Bianchi. And then he got, believe it or not, he, he got a law degree in prison. He's changed his name about four or five times, all shiny, instant names. I think he's been married three times since he's in prison because these half-wit women fall in love with these creeps. Well, Tex Watson, they had conjugal visits back then, and he had kids in prison, fathered kids. <laughs> You're telling me something <laughs> I don't know now. <laughs> I'm good for Tex. All right. Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. Yes. And that's around the Amityville horror, is it? Yes. All of your viewers who are into horror films will remember the movie, The Amityville Horror. It was based on a book basically by the same name, which was supposed to be based on fact, but it was utter fabrication. The, the, the true Amityville story, story is on the night of the November the 13th or 14th of November 1974, Butch DeFeo was down in his basement of this lovely house they had in Ocean a Avenue in, in Long Island, took out his Marlin rifle, went upstairs, shot his father dead in the back, shot his blasted his mother to death, went into his two very young siblings' room, two little boys. One had a, had an accident at school and he was in crutches, laying in their beds, blasted them to death. They shot another little sister of his, then went upstairs and blew another one's head off. Jeez. And at trial, did they give some factors as to why he snapped? Well, the problem was, was he pled guilty. When he was arrested... He was interviewed by Detective Dennis Rafferty and Lieutenant Robert Dunn at Yapank Police Headquarters. I interviewed these guys. Actually, they beat the shit out of him with a Long Island telephone book to get a confession. And I mean, if you've ever seen the Long Island telephone book, it's heavy. But he confessed. It was overwhelming evidence. DNA, everything. Well, not DNA, but, you know, everything. Blood and everything. It was guilty. And he goes to trial and he pleads not guilty. And then 10 minutes later, he pleads guilty again. He had a bent lawyer. William Weber was bent. He was a crook. He was the one that did the deal on the book deal and the movie deal. So he's he, he gets literally raised by the judge for being a shyster. Um, he come up with so many stories, and then you get the haunted house story and Satan, and you've got all this, and then you get all the sequels. But but nobody gives a damn about the family, which mm. I find obscene. They're making all these fictional movies. 
but they're pissing over the graves of these dead kids. No conscience whatsoever. Did he not go for an insanity plea? No, not really, no. He was, I mean, he was a drug. He was a druggie as well. Mm. But I met Ronnie. I mean, I met him in prison. Um, they, the guards told me, waffling away, you have to sign a, a disclaimer when you go in with the film crew. Um, and he, a weedy little thing, tiny. And the guard said to me, oh, we only go in here selling twos and threes because he's possessed by the devil. Yeah, right. When I went to see him, he was sitting on a bench in a hallway, unshackled, like a ferret, little ferret. And he said to me, he said, where the fuck have you been? I haven't got all day sitting around wasting, waiting for you. Then during the interview, which was televised, he, um, I just took him to pieces, tore him up. Um, could you give us an example of the things you said to him to take him to pieces? Well, well, one of the one of the one of the things I did have in my possession was a map that he drew, where he'd thrown the Marlin rifle into a dock behind the house into the bay, and it signed Defeo Ron Defeo. And I said to him, "What? Well, you know, you you've admitted this, Ron." I said, "Look, you even you even showed the police where." The rifle was, you You drew a drawing and you, you signed it. I said, and the police jumped in, the divers jumped in the water and picked it up and they hardly got wet. <laughs> you know, he said, oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't draw that picture. He said, they gave me a blank piece of paper and I just signed it. Now, can you see the logic of that? <laughs> they found the gun 10 minutes after he signed it, a piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> it is all these silly little things he comes up with but again he bathes in his notoriety like a duck in water he loves it he loves the attention he's getting but actually if you met him any of you guys met him any of you viewers met him you think what's a little idiot how come you didn't get the death penalty uh, death penalty wasn't around at that time what year was that it was a, it was a moratorium on the death penalty then mm. And it still is. It, New York doesn't have the death penalty today. Is he still alive? Yes. Douglas Daniel Clark, a.k.a. the Sunset Slayer. I love Doug. He, he was on death row, wasn't he? I, I like Dougie. You like this I know, I know. Oh, yeah, I know, I know it's a horrible thing to say, <laughs> and the viewers are probably Some comments vomit. on that. I like him. <laughs> yeah, but the viewers are probably vomit. But Douglas Clark, a.k.a. one of the Sunset Slayers, um, was is on death row in San Quentin State Prison now. Um, if you go on the CDC website and look on death row, you'll see his number and you'll see his picture. Very intelligent guy. When he was young, he was very intelligent, very good-looking guy. Uh, real lady killer in, in the romantic sense. He, in fact, he had so many girlfriends. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. He didn't know, he didn't know which bed he was going to sleep in <laughs> each night, and he, he forgot where he lived. He was a charmer. He had a good, almost a British accent. He was brought up in a very good military family, but he was a womanizer, and he was a, an extreme womanizer. And he got in with the wrong crowd, and he met up with this woman in short called um, her name was Carol Bundy, uh, short, dumpy boggle-eyed, short-sighted woman um, who needed a hunk. And she was paying him for sex. But she also had another boyfriend called John Jack Murray. Now, the Sunset Slayings, when you really get into the story and you really get to know the facts, was that it was Bundy and Jack Murray that did all of the killings. She, Clark was a fool. He got involved with a lot of stuff. In fact, one night she said to him, I'm going to take you out down to Sunset Boulevard, Dougie, and give you a birthday present. <coughs> I'm going to pick up a, a hooker and she's going to give you a blowjob and it's on me. This is what she said. Well, there, I know this is disgusting, but this, Clark and his hooker in the back of the car. He's having his birthday present. I mean, you can't make this up. She sits, turns round from the front seat with her short-sighted boggle-eyed gl bottle glasses on and points a revolver at them and blows, blows this hooker's head off when she's giving Doug his birthday present. And the bullet ricocheted off and hit him. And, I mean... He got himself into a lot of awful fixes, did our Doug. But ultimately, she chopped Jack Murray's head off in his camper van. And then she said to, rang Dougie up, who was with his another girlfriend at the time, said, look, I've got, I've got a head, I've got to dispose of a head. Can you help me? And they threw it in a trash can. But it, it's Why a, did she do that? Because she wanted to implicate him. She Now, she killed... She now killed Murray. Why had she killed Murray? She's killed Murray because he, the, the police were obviously getting very worried about this, and she wanted to get. She got rid of Murray. Now she wants to get rid of Clark, uh, Dougie Clark. So basically, what happened? She grasped him up, and despite the massive evidence, when you look at the police statements, we all know that some police officers can be highly corrupt, especially in the United States of America. And without doubt, when you go into the case in detail, I don't think Doug should be on death row. He should be, he, he should be serving a life sentence of being a mug. But then again, when you look at, when you see him, and when you, if your viewers find my interview with him on TV film, he would be what you'd think would be a serial killer. He looks crazy, but that's all it is. So he ended up claiming that he had chopped the head off. 
the hooker, made up the face like a Barbie doll and used it for oral sex while taking well, the shower. Well, that was actually Wilson. That was Wilson. Now that's it. Now that that was uh, that was a that was a um Exy Wilson. That was a Bundy kill. That was Carol Bundy's kill with Jack Murray. Um, she she wanted Doug to get rid of the, uh, Clark to get rid of the body, but she chopped the head off. So Doug went beyond. They they put it the body behind a dumpster, but the head. And then what happened was. Clark ended for some reason ended up with it in his freezer. <sighs> now the ins and outs of exactly how that happened, I don't know, but but what happened was a few days later, a guy driving up an alleyway saw this like a treasure chest in his driveway, and when he opened it, he thinking he was going to find some gold, he unwrapped this stuff, and there was Zexy Wilson's head. Jesus! But when it was examined forensically examined it had been made up like a barbie doll and what appeared to be there was semen in the mouth but it but again it, it's all very nasty and complicated but again if you listen to what doug's got to say you know you've got to say well there's some benefit of doubt here i don't think he's that stupid Ooh, and you have an uncut tv interview yeah. with clark which is online. It's online. Where can people find that? I'll put th- it. I'll th- put it in the description box. I, th- I think. I think where it is actually. I think it's if you go to Wikipedia and then go down to sources or something. Yeah. I think you can find it there. You might have to look around for. How it. long is it? It's a, a sixty minute with sixty minute. I think fifty minutes. I'd be interested in watching that. You'll you'll actually see me come through the door because I was very nervous nervous because he was ranting and raving. Yeah. But I was I was fiddling with myself as I came through the door. You see me rush in. Yeah, but he was. It took me a long time to get him under control to get yeah. him to shut up, and he just wanted to talk. Yeah, were you tempted to go and interview Bundy? Uh, I did have an interaction with Bundy uh, right towards the end of his did life, you? but I was more interested in doing. I'm on about the female Bundy. Oh no, not no. This, sorry, not Carol. No, Carol. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Um, she died of natural causes. She's died of natural causes anyway. Um, yeah, no, I did not have, no. While we're on Ted then, um, what was your interaction with Ted? Well, it was very brief. Um, it was just before he was executed. Um, ban, Bundy, ban. Ban, ban, Bundy, ban. Dr. Dobson was talking to him. Uh, I did make a TV documentary about Bundy. Mm. Um, started off in Tallahassee. Uh, not Tallahassee, up in uh, Washington State, um, Lake Sammamish with my film crew. And we did right. We cut right across the country down to Tallahassee. I went to the Kaimiga house where he killed Margaret Bowman and the other girl. Um, I I interviewed some of the police officers. I interviewed um, the prosecutor, and I actually handled Bundy's dental casts. And this this is the incriminating dental casts. The the bite marks on, I think it's Lisa Bowman's buttocks or. One of them, but but I know this is like you've got to get your teeth into this. You really have because the thing was, the attorney got these casts out and he said these are the original casts taken from Bundy's teeth, which match the bite marks on the buttocks. And he said, "Don't believe the stories going around about these dental casts." He said he they weren't taken from him forcibly as everybody says. 
He said, what we told him was, as you're so famous, and Bundy had a big ego, you've got to look nice for the cameras. So we want to look after your teeth because that's most important. And this mug took it and he just chomped down on this stuff. (laughs) 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 There's a lot about him right out right now, isn't there? Bundy's. Doesn't stop. The way he charmed the judge really got me in that that trial. Judge Cowart, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Judge Cowart made quite a controversial summing up. You know, he said to him, you're a smart guy sort of thing, and, you know, you would have been good another time you come. But I actually actually do believe what Judge Cowart says. I don't think it was out of order. He was a good judge. He was an honest judge. And what you have to remember, the viewers have to remember, Bundy could have done a plea bargain agreement. He could have saved his life. But he threw his lawyers out, you know, and he tried to defend himself and he made so many mistakes. End of story. What is it with all of the women who wanted to marry him and sleep with him? And... Do you want to do another podcast on women that want to marry serial killers? <laughs> You're kidding me. <laughs> is that a mental illness? Just don't even go there. I can't deal with this because you've got Mrs. Blogs from wherever in this country who's 86 who's got a Pekingese and a parrot that's bald and she's falling in love with somebody like Ted Bundy and writing love letters and wants to go and visit him and then people these killers are saying well can you lend me can you send me a hundred dollars or five hundred dollars because I want to marry you and they're exchanging photographs what planet are these women living on they're disgusting they want to go and look at the crime scene photographs, mm. like I have, and then think about it. What about all the beautiful young hippie women that were, you know, enamoured with Charles Manson? How do you explain that? Well, that's a cult thing, isn't it? That's a slightly different kettle of fish. I think they were more into this fascination of a cult leader, this godlike figure. Um, a bit like today, you've still got these right-wingers that idolise Hitler for that political reasons or the ideology behind it. But I think with these women, it, with with Manson, I think it was definitely a groupy thing. Okay, next one. Keith Hunter Jesperson, a.k.a. the Happy Face Killer. Yeah. Good old Keithy. How did he earn that name? Well... Keith was an interstate trucker. Again, a big guy, six foot seven, built like one of his trucks. Born in Canada, settled in Seattle area. Would go out on his rig, driving all around the States, picking up girls, uh, prostitutes at truck stops, and then raping them and killing them. I think he killed seven. He... It's quite interesting in many ways, but his probably the most horrible kill he did was a girl. I think her name was Sabrise. He tied tied her body under the back axle of his truck, his rig, when she was alive or half alive, and dragged her about twelve miles, I think, across the snow, Army Pass, in the rain and the snow, Ooh. until all that was left was fragments of bone Ooh. and skin. But 
this is a fascinating bit about this thing. This was the girl whose body or part of her body caught his arrest, although there was nothing of her left. Some road cleaners were going along picking up trash and they found what the part of a what they thought was a roadkill of a deer or something, a bit of meat. But it was a human part of a human thigh. And they they called their inspector just to check it and he said, That looks like a human part of a human. So they took it to the doctors, a surgeon or somebody, and in the bone was a small stainless steel pin pin. No no bigger than a small matchstick, smaller than a matchstick really. And under the microscope, it had a number. And she'd had a, a bone injury and she'd had it pinned. And they traced that number back to her, back to Keith. Wow. And that's how he got caught. But while he was on the run, he was sending torting letters to the police, catch me if you can type letters, like Bill Hirons did and a few others. And he'd always put a, a smiley and a happy face. <sighs> but when I tell him, when I when I was right, I mean I had thousands of letters from him. But when I what I did in a couple of letters, I put a smiley, and he said, "Don't insult me with a smiley. I think that's rude." But he again has scores of murder groupies writing to him, and he sent me a thick file of love letters because he likes to boast with photographs of the girls have he that have written to him. And one of them, he said, this girl, look at this girl's letter. And it had a red lipstick mark on it. And I just, oh, it's a lipstick, you know, a kiss. And then when I wrote back to him, said, who was the girl that kissed the letter? I said, I know who it was. It's an American girl. He said, oh, no, that's not lipstick. That's menstrual blood. Wow. No, sick, sick man. What caused him to become a sick man? We're all born as little babies, and then what happens? How do they people? Well, he again, he had a great home. Uh, his father was an outdoor man, fisherman. I mean, wanted to bring his health up. Probably a bit strict, but that's no excuse for what he did. Religious. He, he just became a, a, a sick pervert, and that was it. There was nothing in his childhood to suggest he'd been abused or anything like that. There was no, no signs of abuse. So then, so he was just driving over around the country then, random victims here and there. Yeah, just pick up hitchhikers or something. Well, well prostitutes at drugs uh, or, or or hitchhikers. Prostitutes at trucks. I mean, you get a lot of that uh, with um, truckers, and you get it with taxi drivers sometimes, and you get it with delivery drivers and people out when they're driving along on their own a lot. They start to fantasize, especially if they got some inner fantasy, um, and. A woman climbing a lift, or even a woman who's drunk, like a lot of Peter Sutcliffe's victims were when they came out of their clubs, make for easy pickings. Have you studied Sutcliffe much? Yes. What's your thoughts on him? It's, I think it's always been posed that he was a sex killer in the true sense. I disagree. He never once killed for sexual gratification, not like a lot of other serial killers. He killed because he hated women with a passion. 
because most of them were prostitutes, or I prefer to say working girls, a bit more PC, he had a hatred for his mother because she cheated on his father, and that shocked him. He found out that Sonia, when they were engaged, had had an affair. That was his wife. Yeah, later his wife. Uh, a little man syndrome almost with him. And he built up this hatred. He, he was an insignificant little grave digger, but he was—he had a big, he, he was narcissistic, narcissistic, and he would groom himself for hours, standing in front of a mirror, trying to make himself look bigger and smarter than what he was. But women generally weren't, weren't very interested in him. Only Sonia was the only one that really took any interest in him. And he developed this hatred for women. And of course, if you hate, if you get into that pathology, then you start thinking, what are the easiest prey? And then it's prostitutes. And they're dirt. to him, they were dirt. And if you look at the kill itself, there was never any sexual assault as such, not rape or anything like that. It was overkill. It was bashing the head in. And when a serial killer like, for instance, Harvey Carrington, who I interviewed, Harvey the Hammer in, in Minnesota, when you see a destruction of the head or terrible stabbings there's hatred more than anything do you see what Just i mean a it's an overkill a frenzy keith hunter jesperson told me in mcf um i said why did you smash their skulls to a pulp he said because they played mind games with me and i was destroying the mind but can you see it now can you see that mind set thinking yeah hate women the brain, the mind, playing mind games, teasing him. Same with Sutcliffe. It, it's not rocket science when you actually look look at it carefully. Do you know anything about Sutcliffe's relationship with Jimmy Savile? That's not in my remit, really. The person to ask would be um, our colleague here, Boris, and uh, I, I really don't know. that. There's a lot of people that Boris knows with his website that would probably know more than I do. I've heard something, but I don't really want to comment on that. So you visited Harry the Hammer. Harvey the Hammer. Harvey yeah. the Hammer. Yeah, Harvey Lewis Carey. What, what did he look like? Ooh, another big guy. Uh, built like an, a, a gorilla. Even at the age he was, 60 or something. When I met him, he could still do one-arm pull-ups for quite a long time. Um, almost a Neanderthal-type head. Ugly as sin. Very soft voice almost a grandfatherly voice when you're talking to him. Um, comforting voice. But he killed probably 50. 50? About that, yeah. I mean, he, he's been convicted of quite a few, but I, I'm not sure how many he's been convicted of, but not anything like that. But they found, when they arrested him, they found a map in his car uh, all around the United States and there were red crosses in certain places and every time they went to a red cross, they found a body. They reckon it's about 50. How did he get away with it for so long? bit like Bundy. He, 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 he moved interstate. You know, he shifted around. He went from one jurisdiction to another. But his arrest was interesting because I met the two arresting officers um, and uh, they told me that, they, that one of the victims, some of his victims, he let go. He, he, he actually patched up their wounds and took them home. <laughs> Is that because they managed to talk him around? Uh, you know, I don't, you don't know. He, something happened in his mind, but... <coughs> excuse me, please. But they had a description of his car, which 
was a, a, a pea green, a black over pea green Chevy or something. And, and the police were in downtown Minneapolis and they spotted this car parked outside a diner early in the morning. And so they, in those days, they didn't actually have radios, they had to go to a telephone box or something. So one officer went round back and uh, one, no, one officer sort of sat in the car, the other one went and looked in the diner and the diner said, oh yeah, the big guy in that car, he's just hightailed it out back. But he walked back to the, walked back to get in his own car and he got arrested. Mm. I uh, Russell Kruger, the chief detective, was Irish cop. I, I spoke to him uh, and you get Irish Minnesota cops said hard. You know, this is, this is a real tough guy. And he said to me, Harvey the Hammer, he said, he said they should have fried the fucker. He said they should have fried him. He said there'd have been a queue waiting to pull the switch. He said then they should have buried him, stuck a stake through his heart, buried him, dig him up a week later and stick another stake in to make sure he was effing dead. He's a, mon he's a monster. Wow. But when you actually talk to him, Despite his ugly looks, and again, you can find his picture on the Minnesota inmates website. He looks like an ape, a gorilla, but he's got such a soft voice. You know, you wouldn't think. Early, and he was unshackled as well. Yeah. Early, you mentioned Henry Lee Lucas. Yeah, good, Henry. What do you think about all the um, <laughs> unsolved crimes they pinned on him? Yeah, Henry. Yeah, good old Henry boy. Yeah, um, again, part of all my travels, really. Um, I met Henry in um, on death row at uh, Ellis Unit, one-eyed, gungy, wiping his gun. And he, he said to me, we're a television crew there. And he said, Chris, he said, I, I done killed nobody. You see, okay, Henry, what's so, what's so? No, he said, I never, I'm done never killed my mum. I never killed my mum. My my sister never killed my mum, but I done killed my sister. But I never never killed anybody. Like he was completely off the wall. Um, <laughs> him and Otis O'Toole, they killed everything that walked, flew, swam. And I spent a good few weeks out in Texas. Uh, again, cops, everybody, everything. Unique. I love Texas. And um, I didn't interview Otis, but I interviewed Henry. And um, he. the police say that he killed scores and scores of people. But in a lot of cases, what it was, was all these homicides. Well, the minute jurisdictions all around America realized Texas has got a complete nutball there. They want to they want to clear all their cold cases up, put it on Henry. <laughs> and I think most of your viewers will go, yeah, he did 100 or 50 or 60. No way he didn't. But what he, I mean, some of the murders pinned on him were the same day, but 400 miles apart. <laughs> he couldn't have done them. It got out of control, didn't yeah. it? I mean, he was getting, he had new teeth fit, fitted. Yeah. He had new clothes. And all these detectives are doing grip and grins with him. Yeah. And then he's in the limelight. <laughs> but, you know, he got off death row because uh, he was mentally ill at the end. and uh, and But he died of natural causes. What about his sidekick? What happened to him? Otis, he died. Yeah, he was a sick man anyway. Was he? Yeah, they're both sickos. We're but now, I think the only murder he actually got convicted of was the Orange Sox murder. Was it? And she was unidentified anyway. Mm. The only, the, 
But but you see how it went from oh just one identified girl we got him definitely got him for that but let's have another fifty on top of that <laughs> we we'll clear all our all our slates up. So what is unique about your writing style? Well, it's unique in in so far as let's go back um, to the twenties perhaps. Um, and I've got a lot of books written by police officers and judges going back in the 20s. And it was all very much a uh, policeman was saying, oh, I arrested Mr. Smith at so-and-so in his murder and I've got some crime scene. For and it was very dry. And the judges were very dry. Um, and But fascinating stuff, nonetheless. And then I started reading true crime magazines and books. And again, I see this, the writer is talking at, the reader it's not with the reader and i'm a great lover also of bill bryson's books me too and i know bill not very well but we 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 some chat sometimes or write to each other very occasionally and i've been to a couple of his lectures in london and i love the way bill takes his reader on his travel journeys with him and I love the irreverence that he sometimes brings in. So he'll be writing about something and then he'll digress onto something which the reader say, well, what's going on there? But it's like, it, and I do it now in my books. So I might be talking about some killer on death row, but then I want to talk about San Quentin. Or, and what I try to do is bring the reader on my journey so they can experience what I'm experiencing I don't talk at them. We're, we're like on a coach trip together and I'm pointing out things and I'm bringing in a anecdotes as well. And because it's a hor an horrific subject and very dark, what I also try to do is this Bill Bryson bring in a bit of dark humour or go off beam for a minute, as is my want, as my regular readers will know, because I, I put it as my readers know, to make them laugh. Because if you go too far into the abyss it, it 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 becomes sad really sad you'll fall in yeah you fall in yeah you fall in and it's not pleasant but if i can take the reader to that part and then pull them back and then have them in hysterics we had an incident the other day we were talking about something boris and i my co-author on another book and um, we were talking about something um and it was the killer who he he, he said he is i think it was oh it's ronnie cray and ronnie cray once said that he, he he wanted to be he was like genghis khan and lawrence of arabia he liked he liked reading books on lawrence of arabia. well ronnie was pretty well dyslexic but he he loved to read his books and then, and then he said, the shrink, he said, because um, he said, well, what did uh, what did Genghis Khan do? And he said, well, he got killed on a motorbike or something. <laughs> and, and, and Lawrence Arabia chased Arabs in the desert on an elephant. Now, when you read something like that in a book, if, if I did a, a similar thing in a true crime book, the, the reader laughs and the reader laughs with you. But then it comes back to, and I also don't force my opinions down the reader's throat. I like the reader to be able to form their own opinions about something. 
So, and if it's too technical, I'll say, well, that was a lot bit long-winded. Let's cut this down to the man wasn't all the all these psychiatric labels attached to him. He, he lived in a world where elephants bounce, lead balls fly, and fairies reign supreme. He's bonkers. Let's keep it simple. That's what the reader wants to hear. Did you meet the craze? Ronnie, I did. Um, I, I met him with a guy, um, another guy who died recently, uh, Paul, uh, who committed suicide recently, bless him, uh, Paul Lake. Uh, I met him in Broadmoor. Um, he was sharp suited, a beautiful immaculate suit, cuffs down here, beautiful cufflinks, RK on them, polished shoes. We sat in the communal visiting room and he asked me if we asked if would you like a Coke or something, a drink? And I said, Oh, well, Diet Coke would be great, Ron Tears, you know, thanks very much. And he snapped his fingers and some guard or somebody rushed over and he, he said, Two Diet Cokes for these gentlemen to be quick about it. And with him, <laughs> Coke was there. And he, he was very, very pleasant. I mean, obviously, he had a psychiatric illness. Obviously, he was under medication at the time. But he was an absolute gent to talk to. And I, I, the life of me, I can't. I mean, I've interviewed so many killers and stuff now that I, I can't really remember what we talked about. But I think it was just general chit chat. In Broadmoor, also, I have to say, I met a guy called Paul Beecham who was a mass murderer. Uh, on TVS in those days, they had an art exhibition of Broadmoor patients of their artwork. And one of them was of that famous picture of a green lady. I forget who did it now. Treshikoff or someone, I don't know who it was. And I thought, wow, that's fantastic. I'd like to buy that. So I went up there and I met the artist, Paul. And I got to know him. And he'd killed his mother and his grandparents. He blasted their brains out with a shotgun. And I got on very well with uh, Paul, very likable guy, schizophrenic. And one day we were walking around the gardens at the back of the hospital. And it was autumn and there was a guy sweeping up some leaves and putting them in a wheelbarrow. And Paul said to me, see that guy over there with those leaves? He said, that's a psychiatrist. He said, he, he turns into a fly at night and sits in my room and watches me. <laughs> And with that, he walked over to this guy and picked up his rake and smacked him around the head with it. Well, Paul had a very tragic ending. Um, As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. He was, he, he met a woman called Riddlesworth, a girl who was a, a welfare worker, and they fell in love. And they, after he'd been in there so many years, they, they released him. On his release, we, Paul and I got on very well. 
and uh, he came and stayed with me at my cottage in in Wickham, uh, only for a few days. And we just to talk about because I'm an oil painter as well, quite well known oil painter. And we we went to Winchester. We walked on the canal with my two dogs, and we talked about canvases and pigments and brushes and stuff. And in the morning, I had my paintings around my place. And and then in the morning when I woke up, he'd gone and he'd gone into the kitchen and he cleaned the kitchen up. And he'd um he left a note and said, um, my time time's finished. I'll never be as good as you, Christopher. I've got to go. I think about ten days later he beat his wife to death and buried her under a patio in the home. And then he blew his brains out. Jesus. But he was a really nice guy, as it that, you know, and he was mentally ill and and, and, and and a person like that who's mentally ill, I got a great deal of sympathy for. Did you not think housing him temporarily was not without risk um i i didn't think so i mean i did have two shotguns at the time but i put those i was bright enough to put them in the garage out of the way <laughs> but um no i i just felt i felt very at ease with paul I, he was schizophrenic i i know why he killed himself and his wife um he, he stopped taking the drugs when he was out when he was released he he did say to me, you know, they're always talking about me down the pub. They know I've been to, they know I've been in here. They know I'm a murderer. And then he 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 got his wife to bring her two sons in one day, and he sat down with his two boys and said, "I've got to tell you what I've done and who I am." And those boys took it on the chin. But he he was schizophrenic, and he started to believe that people were pointing at him. He believed his wife was gossiping behind his back. This is mental illness. Was, and he just lost it. And it's a great shame. That was a tragedy. They shouldn't have let him out, basically. So you mentioned then how you weave humour in. Is that a coping mechanism for you as well? The humour in my books. I, I take the lead from homicide detect. I mean, I've been, I've been, and and I've been where they've exhumed bodies on some of the cold cases I've worked on, and I've seen, I've seen the heartache of parents when they've sat in front of a camera, like I'm with you on a TV show or something. And and they they want their they want their daughter found a body, and for a, a telejournalist or a criminologist, it, that's when it gets heavy. And you're the only part. I'm the you know I'm the only person the killer's talking to. They won't talk to the cops, and I've got to try and get out of this. I've got to work with this guy to get because that's that's serious time now. Uh, one of Kenneth McDuck's victims, his mother, I interviewed her in a motel in Waco, and um, she was drugged up to the eyeballs. And she told me she'd been out for 12 years every night. Her husband told me 12 years every night was a spade digging up half of Waco trying to find her mm -hmm. daughter. And I said to her, look into the camera and ask Kenneth McDuff, please can I have my daughter back like your mother would do with you? I got we got that body back in the wow. end. Uh, that's another story. It was a we tricked Macduff, and his mother helped me trick him. But after that interview, I was shaking, and I, as you know, I smoke, and I had to go outside and have about ten cigarettes, and I was in tears. And her husband came out to me, and he put his arm around me, and he said, "Thank you," and we did find the body eventually but he was about to be executed at the time and that's when it gets heavy and it's happened in connecticut on a couple of cases where 
the killer will only talk to you because of the rapport you've built up, because they think you're British, because they they think that your British justice system is better than theirs, that you've come a long way to see them. You're making them feel special. You're, there you go. You're asking for their help. Sometimes you trick them into saying, oh, I did this or I did that, what I did with Michael Ross, two bodies out of that one. So sometimes it's heavy work. So to answer your question, yes, sometimes I have to put a bit of levity in my books. I don't apologize for it, but it's a very dark place, this world. And if I can make the reader smile or laugh sometimes on my on our journey, then I think it's a good thing. So the cops contact you and bring you in as a specialist to interview these people? I have done on a very few occasions, uh, one not so long ago, about a 1957 homicide in Cranford Park in London. A woman called Muriel Maitland was murdered in 57. Um, it comes about really when I'm writing to an inmate and then I start talking to the cops and they say, well, we actually like to know where if he's done this, we won't confess. And then you build up this relationship with American cops who are a lot more easy to get on with British cops, I can tell you that much. Um, they're much more forthcoming. And um, you build up this relationship with the police and then they, they realise that you might hold the key to a case which goes back 15 years, 20 years. And they're very proactive, these American cops, homicide cops. I mean, the British are. But one thing I think British police lack uh, they they could use journalists or writers or people like yourselves a lot more than they do because we've got more to sometimes tools in our box and access to correspondence and material where somebody will be frightened of talking to the police or scared to, but they would rather help you in research for a book or a program. Okay. Skulls getting smashed in. Shark-faced killers in your face threatening you, bodies getting exhumed, crime scene photos. Do you have nightmares? No. Never? No. Nope. Do you dream? No. Nope. Oh, I dream, but not the sort of dreams you're thinking <laughs> about. No. no, I don't. When I, I go to bed, I have a few beers, I go to bed, I say my prayers, and I'm out like a light until the morning. So it's kind of self-medication process. I could do, yeah. Okay. How do you get these psychos to cooperate you when they won't speak to the cops? You write in your books that you use a specific bait to manipulate them. Can you give us a few examples of this te technique you call fishing? Fishing. Uh, a, psych a psychopath, are egotistically driven, they're egotistic, a narcissist, and they're control freaks. And they've got no conscience. And um, if, when they're in prison, they're just a number. I mean, they're out of society. The newspaper headlines have died down. They're just a number in a cell on a block. End of story. Some, and, and, and that case might interest me. I'll come to one very briefly in a minute. And so I'm thinking, how can I, how can I, so immediately I think I want to write to this guy. I know his prison number. I know where his address is. I'll write to him. I'll send him a book cover. I'll send him a few press cuttings and I'll say to him, I'm fascinated with your story. This is just one example. And so I think you might be innocent. I'd like to write a book about you. I think we could get a TV program out of you. They get that in their cell 
and they're nobodies now. And they think, wow, from England, pretty air mail. Oh, my gosh. They go around telling all the inmates, I'm going to be famous. <laughs> they're on the hook. When you're corresponding, is finding out with Kenneth Bianchi, he once said to me, lie, lying, he said, I used to have a red Ferrari. And I, and I actually had a red XJS at the time. And I said, oh, I wish I could afford a Ferrari, Ken. I've only got a red XJS. I sent him a photograph of me standing by it. Do you see my point? Yeah. If he says he likes brunettes, I'll say, oh, well, yeah, I do as well. It's getting that bond, building a bond over a period of time. Melanie Maguire, the ice queen from um, New Jersey, was upscale, quite a beautiful girl in her time. She's not now. She's bit of a wreck now but she was into french cuisine well read well read married to a, a doctor or somebody medical man had a beautiful upscale house in new jersey class a classy lady but she took it upon herself to chop her husband up into bits put him in suitcases and heave them off a bridge into the chesapeake bay what was the motive uh, nobody really knows <laughs> not insurance i think anything. well there she was having an affair with another doctor and then and but the evidence against her was overwhelming well when this case hit the headlines it went all around the world the ice queen the beautiful melanie mcguire because she was a beauty then i'm in england and the world's media and authors are all writing to her many from america and i'm thinking i want her story now Cream Conqueror paper. <laughs> right? So I, I, I type a letter to her and I write in handwriting her name and sign off in my name. And my own family D seal, wax seal, I stamp on the bottom. <laughs> Don't go there, please. Your viewers are going to go, Christopher needs to be put in Broadmoor. <laughs> and I sprayed it with Egoist Chanel. And I put it in an envelope of the same type with an air mustache and posted it. Now, here's the bait. She's sitting in her cell in a prison which stinks of grease, fat, foul-mouthed women all around her. Her lifestyle's gone. All she's got are memories of her good days. She gets my letter. She opens it. She smells it. She knows straight away it's an expensive cologne. All the other letters are just standard letters. This one's come from England. She looks at the stationery, classy. She looks at the wax seal. She knows what that's all about. Every now and then, because of the environment she's now living in, she'll go back to that letter and smell it again. It's a sensory approach, subliminal. She wrote straight back to me. <laughs> I got her. I caught her. Like that. Simple as that. It's just like a fisherman. A fisherman knows where the fish swim and hopefully what bait to use. I did it with O.J., uh, uh, J.R. Robinson, the bodies in the barrels murderer, uh, uh, the first internet killer. I caught him a similar way. I told him I was going to write a, a book about him and uh, he's going to be famous in England. But this is guy who's a sadosexual maniac who was into B BDSM 
the same time, I had an FBI female FBI special agent writing to him, pretending to be into BDSM. He was telling me he was innocent. He'd never done any of this, but I'm getting the letters again. That he wants to whip her and become a slave master to her. And then I exposed it all in the book. And when I told him, he flipped. But it's the bait. He sniffed round it, first of all, because they're very cunning. But eventually, they'll bite, if you're right. And then you catch them. You're not worried that when they flip like that, they have connections outside of prison and there could be repercussions? Only once has that ever happened. Harvey the Hammer Carrigan. What happened? I lived in a lovely big detached house and eight acres of land in Hampshire. I had a silver Mercedes car, lovely wife and kids. One day I had a letter from him saying, I know where you live. You drive a silver Mercedes car. You've got two kids. Your wife's beautiful. I'm watching you. I have friends in your country who will look after me. I thought, oh, my God, I'm in the sticks. This guy knows what car I've got. He knows where my kids literally go to the school. It didn't take long for me to figure out that the woman, the person he's talking about, was a 70-year-old woman living in Hammersmith that had a, a budgie that was neurotic because I went to see her, and she'd been writing love letters to him. Mm. And that was it. <laughs> Good old Harvey the Hammer. What did the internet killer do? Uh, uh, Jar Robinson was the first uh, internet serial killer. He would trawl the internet for uh, BDSM chat rooms and stuff like that. And then the other the bait, you've got to think bait again. And this is one of the things I've, I've gone out to my books. A red light district, a red light is bait for a man looking for a hooker. That's why hookers call hookers, and that's why they say uh, they go fishing for a client. Bait, bait can be, a bait can be used, or a trap, or a snare can be used by, in many many ways, for a, a, a killer to, in, or a, a crook, or a gangster, or a, a con man to lure a, a victim into their web. They do it all the time. These con men on the internet. With Jr., he would put go to these BDSM sites, and then he would invent himself as a very, very wealthy man who had a mother that was ill, had a yacht, wanted to cruise the Mediterranean. Look, we're into the same business. Would you like to come and work for me? You'll get X amount of money. The bait there was not just so much overtly the BDSM. It was the hope, the light of, I'm going to get a good job, mum. This man's offered me a fabulous job. I'm going to go down to Kansas and get a job. When he went, they, they ended up, he fleeced them all killed them what method did he use to kill them <coughs> bludgeoning bludgeoning um and he put their bodies in barrels to rot but he left about three of them on his property that's how he got caught um but i spent a lot of time he was i would call him a homicidal del boy he was like a, a, a con a businessman a con man a, a rip-off merchant i mean he invented different so many different personalities but he's on death row so what is your latest book called, the one about serial killers and rapists stalking their victims? The book Stalking, the, the, this is one of the one of the, the talking of serial killer series. It's, it's called Stalking. Well, it is the serial killer book, but it's um, it's got stalkers across the bottom in a white flash. Yeah. A picture of it. Um, I tried to put my mind, we always talk about, the kill and the murders and stuff. But 
But I thought to myself, the stalking element is actually one of the most important aspects of a serial killer's MO. They get a, a lot of killers, not, not just snatch and grab merchants, but some of them stalk their victims for months, days, weeks on end. And they get a tremendous amount of satisfaction through the stalking, the watching, the voyeurist coming out in them. And this type of psychopathy is so exciting is that they will, it gives them sexual relief as well, the watching. And then it, the, the thing I can crawl, I can go into her home tonight when she's at work and I can steal her underwear. Now, Colonel Russell Williams was British born. He was a Canadian Air Force colonel. He ferried the royal family around. He was in charge of the largest Air Force base in Canada. He ran that Air Force base. He was in charge of procurement for the Canadian Air Force. He was high security ratings, but he was a serial rapist, 30, 30 rapes and three, two or three confirmed kills. And he, yet he would stalk and he would he would go into their homes and he would steal their underwear. Then he'd video himself back at his own place wearing their underwear. He would collect their underwear. Um, he would dress up in stockings and high heel shoes. And yet the next day he would go to work and be an Air Force colonel. But it was the stalking element. And I tried to imagine what it would be like for a woman who suddenly thought, I've seen that guy before. He's got creepy eyes or what's he doing looking you know what's this going on how it would put the, a chill up how it would feel to for a woman to be known she's being stalked like jill dando years ago that was the doorstep killer killed her the guy killed her bless her so the stalking element is very for me was very interesting a subject to get into and then look at how serial killers have done that and what the, and, and tried to work out what was going through their minds when they were doing it on a specific case and it became an interesting exercise, and the book became a bestseller overnight. Do you think that's some warped um, modern-day transference of us formerly being hunters, and that's like a modern-day warped pattern that's been repeated from us being hunters, like stalking animals and stuff? It could be. I mean, I've got to just tell you this. This is like a little bit off the wall, but... When I I spend a lot of time in the Philippines, and and I went with my partner to the ocean Manila Ocean Park, which is a massive aquarium place. It's beautiful. It's amazing. The best in Asia. And we went through the creepy crawly section, and you got all these little glass boxes of things, and and all there is in there sand in there, and like twigs and things. And I'm looking at the label, and I've got I normally wear glasses, and I'm I'm peering through it, and I thought. Maybe he's not home today. Maybe he's gone to another cage, this thing, because I can't see anything. Then I went to another one, and I just saw, like, sand. And I looked closer and closer, and I just see two little black pinholes in the sand. I thought, no, nothing in there. And then, it, excuse the pun, it, I twigged. When I got back home a week later, I thought, that's what serial killers are like. They... they they're invisible. You, you don't even know they're there. And all of a sudden, in this little cage, this little box, a little bug goes crawling along looking for a snack on a leaf, and all of a sudden, snap. Could be a lizard or anything. And I thought, that's exactly the same as how serial killers, just serial killers, not, not spree killers or not mass murderers, 
how sprinklers work. They have a mask. They wear this mask of something else or camouflage. Shipman wore the guise of a doctor. Although he, was a, he was camouflaged as a doctor. Many of the police serial killers I've interviewed in America have been police officers. They're honest, but they lure girls into their car. The guise of uh, Novelli Heath, the Englishman that was hanged years ago, adopted different military guises. Uh, just after the war, he'd go into a hotel, no money, into the Tollard Royal Hotel in Bournemouth, which was five star in those days. Colonel Heath, Colonel whatever his name was, every oh jolly good chap, blah blah blah, and he go and kill 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 people. All serial killers wear a mask of normality, several masks and women, uh, but underneath that mask of normality is a monster. Do you think everybody has the capacity to kill? I think depending on the circumstances, you get murder on you know impulse murders, a rage. It could be a drug-related thing when they never intended to hurt somebody or something. I you know, I don't think the capacity is in everybody. No, I disagree with that. What's your definition of a spree killer? A spree killer is a person, a man that will, uh, like the Michael Ryan massacre in Hungerford years ago, where a man will take up some guns or a gun. And he will go walk about and he will kill over a period of an afternoon or a day until he's now shot or he's arrested over a period. A serial killer is a offender that will kill once and then he will calm down, be a cooling off period. Then he will kill again. And once he's reached three kills, he becomes a serial killer. But the events normally get closer and closer and closer together until he's apprehended. So where does a mass murderer fit in that? Ronald DeFeo, the Amityville horror guy we discussed earlier, is a mass murderer. Typic it, technically, it's family side, familiar side because he's killed his family, but it's in one location. A bomber could be a ma is a mass murderer. So it's one incident, one without any cooling off. It's just one thing happening at once, and normally that's the last one. So how would you classify... A mafia hitman who's got multiple victims, maybe dozens of victims over the years. Well, it depends who it is, really. Which ma which mafia guy you're talking about? I mean, we could Sammy we, the Bull Gravano. Then he had almost twenty four. Yeah, you got the Ice Man, haven't you? And, and the Ice Man. Like that. I mean, Ronnie Cray and Reggie Cray. I mean, if they want to kill their own kind, let them get on with it. Don't bother about that, me. You don't classify them as serial killers. Not well, they are in a way because they, but they're, I mean, they're contract killers. It's a different sort of genre altogether. So contract killing puts them outside of serial killing definition. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm dealing with people that are sexual, sexual homicide, sexual killers. You know, if the mafia want to go and wipe out another gang, <laughs> then good for them. <laughs> Don't worry me at all. All right. So your previous book was murder.com. And your new book now, you are incorporating the use of the internet to stalk prey. Could you expand on how that's transformed the landscape for killers? Murder.com came out several years ago, and it was written with the cooperation of Russian police, FBI, numerous law enforcement agencies, um, on how the internet has now become a trawling ground, a fishing ground for con men, crooks, 
Uh, every day we see some lady in America say is falls in love with a general in Afghanistan who's got more medals than General MacArthur. She falls in love with him. He says, oh, I'm injured. I need some money. She sends him money, but she finds out he's a, he's a shoe salesman from Turds Creek, Ohio, you know, and she gets fleeced. This is the internet where anybody can invent themselves to be anybody. There are a lot of lonely men and women out there and they're easily fleeced, but they can be fleeced of their lives. Murder.com took the history of that from Victorian times when in those days, there was what you call a lot of want ad, want ads in the newspapers. Lady seeks position at so-and-so home. Lady seeks, lady with dowry seeks loving partner. That was the Victorian era. There was a lot of this sort of want ad killings going on then. The actual method hasn't actually changed much. It's just the method by which it's delivered. In those days, it was the newspaper. Now it's the internet. And the internet is a fabulous place, but it can be a very, very dangerous place too. So what do you say to people who may be suckered in by these predators online? I watch this show called Online Evil, and the stories are just mind-blowing. People posing as women who aren't even women, and they entice someone, and then they rob them and kill them. And... There was, I don't know if it's still going now, Women Behind Bars website where there was countless women who were locked up for all manner of offences from hook, interstate truck hooking and car theft to murder. And there was one woman, I think she was in Florida, <coughs> who put up a picture of, I can't name the woman's name, but it was a Russian model. And she said she was a Russian model. And, and, and she had so many guys writing to her with money that the prison staff couldn't handle the sacks of mail. And they were stuffed with money. And she was getting it sent to other addresses. But she had a face, a real face, was like somebody to hit it with a grenade. She was totally ugly, yet she fleeced countless, countless men because they... Another one of the cases in my book, there was a, a, a London doctor, a, a black guy, smashing guy. He was married. He fell in love with a Russian girl because he thought she looked like Anna Kornikova, the tennis player or whatever her name was. And she came up with a story that her mother was ill. Could, she, could he send her $500 for some new flip-flops? Now, Russians don't own peanuts, and he sent it. And he kept sending her money, and then she invited him over there. But she told him, would you please bring U.S. dollars because you won't be able to use your debit card in Russia. So he took something like about $25,000 with him, about £25,000 with him, and when he got off the plane at the airport in Moscow, she said, oh, a friend of mine will pick you up. Never seen on live again. It were Russian mafia scam, dating scams. And that goes on all the time now. You wrote then that when the serial killers are stalking 
and hunting, they get a thrill from having power over life and death. But then the actual kill is the culmination of the stalking. How does the killer's psychology change from stage to stage? The, mo most serial killers start off on a, what a, you could say peeping toms or they watch porn or something like that. Then they want to, then they go and they want to push their luck a bit further. They're normally loners anyway. They're you know, they're not exactly social animals. And then they're minor sexual assault, and I just say minor, I mean just a touching or something, and then it will be probably a serious sexual assault. They won't get caught, then there'll be a rape, and then they'll come to a point where they've got to kill a victim. They cross the threshold into murder, and then it becomes serial murder because it's like a drug. The brain is like a, a fix in the brain, like you can't stop it. Once you're into that into that mindset, you're, you've had it. You can't stop until you're stopped. Now, the stalking phase, there are killers that would just grab somebody off the street, a young girl staggering home drunk. Peter Sutcliffe drives past, bang, she's dead. But a lot of serial killers love the stalking element, like I said about Colonel Williams. The following... That I'm in control, you don't know it, but I'm going to kill you. You're a dead woman walking, but I'll do it in my own time. That's deadly bad. That's serious stuff. And the girl was working in, say, a chemist store uh, in an office, and yet this guy's standing over the road waiting his Mac, waiting for her to come out, and then he follows her home. And then he's getting a kick out because he knows he's got he's got power over her. She's going to die when he's ready at his choosing and what he's going to do with it is going to be completely up to him and she's nothing. That's scary. That's squawking. That's bad. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And then, and then there's the kill. So how does the killer's psychology change from the stalking mode into the kill? And what is the psychology in the aftermath? Well, I just want to back up one little bit. When I said about the spontaneous snatch and grab kill, these killers are normally have got a subconscious thinking all the time when they're out in their trucks or whatever it is. They're thinking about sex or something, whatever. And then it's suddenly an opportunity arises and it's a snatch and grab. Other ones just follow in, you know, everything else. The actual kill itself, if I could describe Michael Ross in Connecticut, who's now executed, was, that was the one I got two cold cases out of. Um, when he talked to me, he... He, he on camera he he was a, he was a snatch and grab but he'd been 
fantasizing about sex all day long. He masturbated sometimes 20 times a day. Uh, and I mean, this is like, you know, and, and to look at him, you'd think he was a normal guy with glasses, you know, IQ of 155, Cornell graduate. But the, the actual kill, um, and when he killed, he, he and, it, and he used to say, Strangler's not like on TV, Chris. It's they writhe around and kick and struggle. He said, and my hands used to cramp up. And I had to stop and let them writhe around on the floor and beg and scream. And I had to massage my hands before I applied my grip. That's why there were so many bruises around the girl's neck. And then he would turn around and say, but I could only ejaculate at the point when the light of life went out of her eyes. But then he said, I, I panicked. Have I been seen? Because this was in broad daylight on a busy road. He took them into woods. And then he would panic. I've got to get out of here. Shit. So he drags the body and puts it by a stone wall and covers up with leaves and drives away. But but the kill itself, in every event, is just, once it's done, the poor victim, whether it's a man, woman, or a child, it becomes garbage. And they dump it like trash. That's how these people think. They don't care about the pain, the suffering, the aftermath. They don't care about the, the suffering next to kin and the relations have to put up with. They don't care about law enforcement officers who have got to clean up the goddamn mess afterwards and the cost to society. That's why serial killers are so sick and evil. They're nothing to be made fantastic movies about like Bundy films, the Bundy World films, all making Bundy out to be an American icon. He's not an American icon. He's a scumbag. So after the kill, is there then a lull in the desire to resume the stalking and the hunting? Is it like a cycle? And does the frequency of the cycle condense as they have to get more and more kills to satisfy the high they get? Yeah, I think we just look at it like a, a, a craving, really. Um after, the, say, the first rape or the first kill, they got to take stock. Have I been seen? Did I leave anything behind? Forensics are very good these days. Did I, I've, I've got my gloves, damn it, you know, and all this sort of stuff. They're cool off. And if they're living with somebody, a partner, they want to try to be nice to them again and, you know, act normally. But then that craving will, when they realize that nothing's happened, that craving will resume because the underlying psychology there is still there. This need, it's like control the need for now. Whew, I got off with that. And then another trigger turns up. Another girl appears on the scene and they think, ah. And then the killings normally get far more brutal because the killer needs more satisfaction like a fix every time. And therefore, he's killing but he's killing more he's more torture more pain and suffering to satisfy his needs that cool down again and it'll carry on and those events get closer and closer together until eventually he slips up and he gets caught what is the role of narcissism in this narcissism is something i'm is a mind mild form of sociopathy or psychopathy whichever way you look at it uh, former Miss World Anne Sydney is an old friend of mine. She's on my Facebook, and um, she's big on to this narcissism thing. About, but in relationships, 
with women, a narcissist is normally a self-groomer and a bully, and all of a sudden they, they try to control their partners. And it can be either psychological abuse or physical abuse. And in some of these books I've written about that a woman wants to get out of a relationship like that away from a man like that that's bullying i mean he might suddenly go out one night and she said where are you going he says none of your business but he's putting on his perfume he's right he's looking a bit smarter there's red flags and most a lot of women have seen this there's no getting away from it and when he comes home lunk, drunk and he maybe doesn't smell quite right she says where have you been and he says none of your business and he says no i need to know and he snaps at her for, and she, or he might snap at her for some unknown reason we can't go out tonight. Or we're going with the kids tonight. Oh, no, I wanted to do something else. It gets edgy. When you get a narcissist or an extreme narcissist like that, the best thing to do is the woman to get him out of the house and keep him out. I did a couple of TV programs and a radio, a live radio show not long ago with talk radio, and I explained the situation again. And I tried to explain that women have actually got control. The women are the stronger ones. Because the narcissist has got a very weak ego. A very fragile ego. They're easy, their bubbles are easy to burst. You prick it and it goes bang. A woman is strong, can be strong in that situation. If she throws him out, the first thing he'll probably do is beg to come back. Even if she gets a restraining order, darling, there's some flowers for you. Oh, I've, I've, I spoke to your mum the other day and she's upset about it. And look, I'll send you a box. I promise I'll be good. I promise. But it's this sociopathic, sociopathic tendency, this narcissism, because if she accepts him back, it might be all rosy in the garden for a week or so, but he will revert because a leopard never changes its spots. Ladies, if you've got a narcissist and a bully in your home, get rid of him, be strong, he'll come begging back, but kick him out. So you, we see movies like The Iceman where the killer has a normal family life for a period of time. How many killers do have normal family lives and how do they reconcile the two worlds? I, I like it that you say a normal family <laughs> life. <laughs> what can be normal living with a serial killer <laughs> or a hitman? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, um, you look at BTK and people like that. I mean, churchgoers, moral bigots, um, they probably got kids. They go camping at weekends, they go canoeing, they do all the things that daddy and kids should do. Um, but at the same time, they're out there butchering people and then they come home and they just get on with their lives again. A there, there are... This, this book and previous book, this book particularly, there are these red flags in the relationship between a husband and a wife or a girl and a boyfriend. This narcissistic personality comes up every time. I'm, I'm not suggesting that all narcissistic partners are killers. Don't get me wrong. But there are red flags that come up. Maybe he's using the bank card for something he shouldn't be. Maybe he's, maybe he's digging up the garden at the bottom of the garden and, you know, there's a skull in it. The kids find a skull in the hole, and then he says, "Oh, that was my grandfather's part of his medical collection." I mean, this, this, there's cases in this book that prove that. All these little things add up red flags, and if you, if the woman is careful enough, or even before she's actually married a guy, just the courting phrase, just do some homework on him first of all. Didn't Fred West tell his other kids that 
the missing kid was buried under the pavement or something, and you you'll end, you usually end up under there unless you sh- keep your mouth shut. I'm 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 aware of part of that, but I don't quite get yeah. all of it. No. All right, so just looking at some of your books then, and and the themes here, Dad, help me please, published in 1990, was the case of Derek Bentley and Christopher Craig. What happened with those guys? Well, um, this was a case where Derek Bentley was of the age to be hanged. Christopher Craig wasn't. Christopher Craig shot the police officer PC Miles on a on a roof of a warehouse in Croydon. Bentley, who had a mental age of about twelve, was hanged. Um, I managed to get the Section Five One extended closure documents, which were I shouldn't have got, but I got them. Um, uh, and uh, I looked at all the police maps and statements and everything else, and, and then I decided to write the book about it with Robin O'Dell, who's a great crime historian. Um, fabulous guy. He he sort of he was the one that taught me really my skills. He was my mentor, although I was the lead title. But it was my first book. That book got Derek Bentley a posthumous pardon from the then Home Secretary. Uh, his body was taken uh, and reburied in a decent place. Um, his sister Iris was so grateful for that. It became the Reader's Digest nonfiction bestseller. I think the following year. And it made the film Let Him Have It starting, starring Christopher Eccleston. And that was my first book. But I vowed, after all the hard work, I'd never write another book again. <laughs> and now I'm 37 books later. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a good start for me. What was the most you behind the murder? Was it a robbery? Yeah, it was a robbery of a uh, Barker and Par- Parker warehouse in Croydon. Um, but it was botched and... Um, he shot, they shot a police officer. So another one of your hugely successful books is Talking with Serial Killers, published in 2003, and became a 12-part TV series, The Serial Killers. TV series and the book were the first ever in criminal literature broadcasting where the killers were allowed to say all they wanted in their own words. Can we watch that still? I'm not sure if you can still get it. I mean, I know it's being used on Netflix and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, it, this kind of comes back to when I met Fraser Asher, my producer, who, who when I did the, because he was the one that got this Croydon, the, the Barkham, um, Breaking Bentley case out on TV. That's why I started getting publicity there. But he was the one that actually produced the 12-part series, which then became the, the book series. But it was a case of, in those days, it was a bit like the really early days of like traffic cra- police traffic police action. Now I knew the guy that produced those, and there was a tremendous scandal at the time, saying you can't have police pictures of police cars chasing cars around. It never shouldn't happen, but he did it. I went there, and Fraser was brave enough. God bless you, Fraser, you rascal. He he is brave enough to get me into. We get into these prisons when I was the researcher and the interviewer. And, to, and we'd made a decision to let these killers say what they wanted to say to a greater extent rather than a lesser extent. Never happened before anywhere in the world. And then John Blake took a, a punt with me. And I, I, well, I'd rung Virgin, who'd published some of my book, a couple of my books, and I asked them if they'd like to do it. And I spoke to their editor guy. And they said, No, I'm sorry, but that might offend our grey rinse ladies. 
And I rang John Blake and he said, I'll buy it. A bit like with Boris's book. Well, he snapped it up. Brave move. 25 minutes, half an hour later, Virgin Room, you better say, we'll love that book. We've had changed our minds. <laughs> but it would already gone. And that became, that book published in 2003 has been rewrapped and published and published and published and published and published and it's still going strong. And that's why you've got the sequels one all in the same brand today. Congratulations on that. When you are letting killers say things in their own words, some things are so unsavory that perhaps you would have to edit them out. For example, taunting uh, victims, family members. Was there any of that kind of behavior by the killers? They normally taunt the press. They taunt the press. Mm, and the cops. Yeah. It's this catch me if you can thing again. You're playing, they're playing games with the cops. So you wrote Monster, and I saw that movie about Eileen, Lee. Wuornos. Wuornos. Yeah, Lee. Um, did you go and interview her then? Yeah, very briefly. What happened with that was it was going to be a chapter in one of my Talking with Serial Killers books. It's just a chapter. The more I read about her childhood and studied her childhood, the more I became distressed. She was brutalized, wasn't she? I became very distressed. I was hitting the whiskey, to be honest with you, um, to try to. Uh, sometimes you, you your writing's a very, as you know, very lonely profession, um, very isolated, and you're just with your own head talking to yourself. And and I started to think that maybe I'm thinking this is a, a sort of a woman thing. Maybe I'm being sympathetic. This is a woman's thing. You know what what's going on with you, Christopher? But her, her childhood was the most horrific childhood you could imagine. Then she was pregnant and she was raped, brutalized by her stepfather. I mean, this girl went through hell as a kid, thrashed with a leather belt. When she was 11 years old, he threw her out and made her sleep in the snow outside. I mean, what this kid went through, it breaks your heart. But... She pulled herself together and she went on the on the on the lamb. She went out there and she was a she was a smart little girl, you know. And she she, she met a little short gingham top on and a little cowboy boots and blonde hair and a mini skirt. And she met this seventy or eighty year old man called Lewis Graffell, who was a millionaire mogul magnet guy on sticks. And he married her. And he bought, they bought a cat, big Cadillac and drove around her hometown with this old boy, this young Dolly Bird. And, but but he, he put off more than he could chew, did Lewis, chew, did Lewis, because what happened was she decided she didn't want to sit home all night long with him massaging his feet and <laughs> reading about stocks and shares. She wanted to go down the bar and get drunk and play pool, and he wouldn't let her. So she picked up his stick and beat the hell out of him. Took it, 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 it took him, it, she took him to the clean as money wise, got locked up. But she, and then she went down to Florida and then she met um, another lesbian, Taria Moore. And the reason I say that Lee, I'll come to the psychopathy bit in a minute, she, she had a lot of love in her. And she had a lot of love in Taria Moore. And, she was like the father figure of this relationship with Taria. And what happened was, to, to make ends meet, Lee had to go out and become an interstate hooker. But I thought, she went with 200 men plus. She only killed seven. He said, I only killed seven. 
But when you look at the back history of these seven men who beat her up, who tried not to pay her, who started punching her, she pulled out her pistol and shot him. If that had happened with Peter Sutcliffe or the guy in Suffolk who'd done that and one of the girls had pulled out a gun and shot him, there wouldn't have been all these murders. But she shot dead seven men who were just moral bigots, murderous, nasty pieces of work. One was an ex-cop. Another was a Bible thumper. Another man was engaged. Another man was a drunk who beat up women anyway. And she shot him. When I went down to ta uh, down there to Florida to interview the cops, Tarir Moore got off scot-free for grassing her up. And yet, Lee kept her mouth shut. I met some of the cops there. They got the biggest houses, the biggest cars, all through flogging their bullshit stories to the press. And they, they strapped that girl to a gurney and executed her. She was as mad as a hatter at the end. It, it, anybody reads that book or anybody is, reads the history of Aileen Wernos will feel so sad. Now, I've done quite a lot of television and I've argued against other psychologists and psychiatrists that she's not a psychopath. They have now come round to my way of thinking. There's a lot of good in that girl, a lot of love. She turned to prostitution and she was beaten up by guys and she shot them. And good luck to her. That's all I can say. As my friend Tutonis used to say, they had a killing coming. Yeah. So, <coughs> Lady Killer, which became prime suspect, was about the emerging British serial killer, John David. Guys Cannon. Guys Cannon. You corresponded with him and obtained some evidence which convinced the Met Police that Cannon murdered a London real estate agent, Susie Lamplew. Multiple rapist and robber Cannon also murdered Shirley Banks in Bristol. So he, he revealed all this to you? Yeah, I, I, I did the, as your listeners will remember, that I used certain fishing techniques. And when John was arrested and he was in prison, well, he was tried in prison in Bristol, I think it was, Everybody wanted his book, and I wrote to him, and he just said to me, um, he's a very intelligent, articulate, good writer, and he wrote back rather snobbly and saying, well, I'm sorry, but I've got so many people wanting to write my book, I can't be bothered with you at the moment. So what I did was I thought, oh, yeah, okay. I just sent him half a dozen book covers, different book covers, and and, and, and also I got John Blake to uh, invent a phony, um, a phony commissioning note, which I put a copy in, and I said, well, look, this is who I am. Um, I'm going to write the book anyway. This is my credentials. Uh, if I'd like you to cooperate with me. If you don't want to, I'll go and write without you. And, and he came and said, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> Over two years, he corresponded with me. In lengthy correspondence, he made a lot of admissions, which he hadn't. He denied Susie Lamplew completely. He denied Sandra Court in Bournemouth. He denied Shirley Banks in Bristol. He made a lot of admissions, and to be a, 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 even a psychopath, you've got to have a good memory, because what you say one month, you might forget you say something the next month. That's why a lengthy correspondence with these people can be very, very vital. Uh, eventually, obviously, um, you know, all came out about Susie Lamplew. I went down to Bristol, spoke to DCI Brian Saunders. 
I got all the exhibits out and looked at stuff. And I sat with Brian Saunders, who's now in Thailand. He's retired now. He was the chief investigator. And he he, he was going like this. He was sort of going, SLP, no, SLP, what was it? 64, whatever it was. Three. He said, I've been looking at the star signs, Christopher, trying to figure what all this is out. I said, I looked at him and I said, hey, just a minute, Susie Lamplew, third victim, 19, whatever it was. You're kidding me. I said, that's on his bloody car. He was sticking two fingers up at the police, this taunting. Um, very briefly then, I found in the bag of, rub in the bag of exhibits, uh, it was a torn up pay and display ticket. For Paul, May Day Bank Holiday weekend, or that following year, I think 86, whatever it was, I looked at it, I opened it up. I thought, Paul, what's, it, what's that doing in his boot of his car, this piece of paper? Sandra Court was murdered that night, only a mile away from where he was. The body was found in a ditch, the same as the other girls, as Shirley Banks. John had denied ever being in Bournemouth that day. I said, but you can hang on a minute. And then he told me, but previously he told me all about the New Forest, how he drove around all the back roads, and that's where all of her Sandra's possessions were found. Mm. Anyway, <coughs> excuse me, where the police became interested, and they asked me to come up to Buckingham Palace Road Police Station because I had all these letters. John had read my book, Lady Killer. He'd flipped. He said it was a pack of lies. So I told him, I said, I've got his letters. What more do you want? So we went up there, sat down. And it came down to how did John Canan dispose of Shirley Banks, uh, Susie Lampley's body? Her car was found by the Thames. How did he get rid of the body? He must have had another car. So I said to D. Uh, Stuart Alt and Jim Dickey, I said, look, he, had, he was using, when he was up there, he was on day release from a prison hostel wearing with scrubs. I said he was driving a hostel cook's Ford Red Sierra car. Bingo. Now they've got to find this Red Sierra. The Met went through every scrapyard in London and they found the car. And in the car, they found John Canan's DNA and Shirley Bank uh, um, and Susie Lampley's DNA. The CPS, the Can't Prosecute Service, Turned around and said, well, what does that prove? That proves that she's been in the car, and he, but they could have been on different occasions, and they refused to prosecute. <sighs> the police, right? And and then DCI Dickey, uh, uh, Stuart Holt, went on television on a, on a broadcast, and they were furious that they couldn't do it. So they then came to me and said, look, Chris, look, we're going to arrest Canaan, and he's in Wakefield Prison, and we're going to bring him back to Buckingham Palace Road Police Station, I'm going to interview him. Can you give us a few tips on interview techniques? I said, look, I've got the only copies left now of the interviews that Brian Saunders had with Canaan on the Shirley Banks. I've got all the folders because they destroyed theirs. So I've got them from his brief. And the upshot was Brian Saunders called it a game of mongoose and the snake. They interviewed Canaan and then he kept his mouth shut. And that's where a body is, nobody knows. I was in Manila a few years ago and they dug up his mother's garden. 
looking for it. It was all in the papers. When I was out there, I was getting the press on to me all the time. Can you come back? We want to talk to you about this, blah, blah, blah. I said, it's impossible that he's put the body under his mother's patio or his garage because he went home that night. The night he killed Susie Lamplew, he drove straight back to Sutton Coalfield. His mother helped him pay suitcases out of his car, right? Put him in, gave him a dinner, and she said, and, and, and this is Johnny's room, she said he never went in the garage, and yet the police are spending a week digging it up again. Now, last couple of questions then. Um, in many of your books, you talk about the mask of normality. What does that mean? As we touched on earlier, this camouflage that these, these killers wear. Okay, final question. Who is Lenny the Lizard? Lenny the Lizard was actually one of the ins one of the creatures I saw in the Manila Ocean Park. Ah. That's where the first chapter of the book is Lenny the Lizard. Gotcha. Because it's a little bit of humour, but that's where it first triggered off the idea for the book, The Mask of Normality, wearing a camouflage. How many books have you written? Well, I think it's 36. Last count. 36 or 37, but they've been translated into a score of different languages, even Russian now. So, grief. And Japanese, I think. So, <laughs> is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion to the people watching this? No, I just need to go and have a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this podcast, please let us know in the comments. And thank you for subscribing. Subscription logos in the bottom corner down there. In the description box are all of the links to Chris's books. I'll put his like Amazon author page for US, Amazon author page for UK, because there's just going to be reams and reams and pages and pages of books. Um, I have learned so much today. It's been absolutely fascinating. Time has gone like that. I hope it has for you guys too. And I imagine there's just going to be way, way, way more detail in the books if you want to expand on what you've heard today. And also in the description box are the links to our socials and the donation links. Huge thank you to all our people who've donated Patreon, etc. to so we can produce these podcasts in our studio with James and Joe, our cameraman and sound engineer. And that is about it. Let's you want a quick elbow bump? Yep, go for it. Jeez. God bless you all. Yeah, take care, thanks. No nightmares, please. <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.